0: Support for WERU health-related programming comes from the Penobscot Bay Press, committed to providing community news and information. Publishing three weekly newspapers: the Weekly Packet, Island Advantages, the Castine Patriot, the Annual Bay Community Register, the Summer Seasonal Guide, and more. Also on the web at www.penobscotbaypress.com. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online around the world at WERU.org. Healthy Options with host Cynthia Swan is up next. Hi, this is Cynthia Swan. Welcome to Healthy Options, an integrative medicine show. The topic for today's show is mushrooms for health. And my guest is Greg Marley, the author of Mushrooms for Health, Medicinal Secrets of Northeastern Fungi. Greg Marley has a passion for mushrooms that dates to 1971, the year he first traveled from his native New Mexico and spent the summer in the rich wet woods, (coughs) excuse me, of central New York. Since 1980, this expatriate desert dweller has made his home along the coastal forests of Maine. For 35 years, Greg has been an avid amateur mycologist studying, collecting, cooking, eating, and growing mushrooms. For the past 20 years, he has organized and led numerous public walks, lectures, and classes on mushrooms. Along the way, he has ignited and fed the interest of hundreds, as they in turn have become mushroomers. His greatest gift is the sharing of his passion and knowledge in a way that infects others with this bug we call mushrooming. He is an active volunteer mushroom identification consultant to the Northern New England and Control Center and a director of the Maine Mycological Association. For the past 10 years, Marley has focused research on medicinal mushrooms and formed the company Mushrooms for Health to provide education and health promoting products made from Maine medicinal mushrooms. Greg has a B.A. in botany and chemistry and started his professional career as a field biologist, or excuse me, field botanist in the high desert of the southwest. He's the author of, as I said, Mushrooms for Health, Published by Down East Books in 2009 and his upcoming book, Chanterelle Dreams and Amanita Nightmares, The Love, Lore, and Mystique of Mushrooms. Greg's also a clinical social worker specializing in suicide awareness and prevention and lives and mushrooms with his family in Rockland, Maine. Welcome, Greg.
1: Thanks. I'm glad to be here.
0: Good to have you on. Let's dive in. All right. How did you get into mushrooms and why? Well, you know, it was a
1: that trip to new york is what really started it you know i took a bus from albuquerque to new york city and about the second day in i woke up in the early morning maybe five o'clock in the morning and we were in western pennsylvania rolling steep hillsides totally covered in green and it was a new world for me i spent the summer much of it in the woods and of the things that really caught my attention, um, beyond the plants that I loved as well, was the mushrooms. The variety of them, the colors, the forms, the beauty. I didn't know a thing about them at that point, but that's when it really grabbed me.
0: Oh, wow. Now, why, why did you write the book, Mushrooms for Health? How, how did that come about?
1: Well, there's a story behind there. I, was, uh, I, I work in mental health, and um, I was managing a program, and one of the people who worked for me, a fine woman, Um, developed uh, cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Mm -hmm. And I had been reading about medicinal mushrooms as as a curiosity even then, Um, but I wanted to do something that could contribute to her. And so I read up and started making a simple broth um, with several medicinal mushrooms in them and some other things, and would bring in weekly. I'd bring in about a gallon of it for her. Um, and it made me feel better, Mm -hmm. Um, and it certainly, you know, she seemed to like it and consumed it, and it was along with the other um, therapies she was doing. And doing that and, you know, knowing that there was some way that I could help to be effective with a a person I cared about got me really more interested in doing the research um, and learned a lot about mushrooms really from studying um, research from around the world, not so much research from this country. Wow. That was the beginning.
0: And then, well, let, let me ask you this. What is a mushroom? <laughs> <laughs> how, would you, how would we define a mushroom?
1: A mushroom's an apple. Um, and, and I use that because, like an apple, a mushroom is a fruiting body that exists to present and distribute the seeds of the fungus. So, and like an apple, if you pick a mushroom, the rest of the vegetative part of the fungus remains, just like the tree and the roots and the stalk and this everything remains after you pick the apple. So a mushroom is a fruiting body.
0: Okay, so it keeps fruiting. So even though you're picking the mushroom, it another mushroom is gonna appear in that same spot later, right?
1: yeah and that's a little simplistic in that um, um it's it's a little bit different than that. It's some mushrooms, the the vegetative part is perennial mm-hmm. and um, will always you know and, and and can continue fruiting for years and years and years every year. Some of them, like you know, there are mushrooms that fruit on acorn cups or spruce cones, and those have a shorter life cycle, and you pick those little tiny mushrooms, and typically, you know, their whole life cycle might take six months or six weeks even. Oh, okay. So it really varies.
0: So why are mushrooms important? And, and what role do they actually play in our health? I know we've touched on a little bit, but let's dig a little deeper. Why, why in your book and, and uh, estimation are they important?
1: Well, I'm going to take a step back from us, since we're all egocentric anyway. Okay. And talk about the the importance of mushrooms in our world, in our environment. Okay. Mushrooms are rotters. Um, They are the organisms that are probably best evolved and suited to break down dead organic matter, particularly plant matter. And so they recycle nutrients that are bound up in dead leaves and needles and twigs and branches. Um, and make it available for plants to, to use again, or other creatures to use again. Um, in that, they they're they're eating they're eating the cellulose, they're eating the the vegetative part of the of the dead plant tissue. Um, but they're they're consummate recyclers. They also have evolved to live symbiotically with trees and shrubs and other plants, and um, that also they help. They are very integral. To the health of a forest or our plant environment so that's what they do for the environment for us some of the, the um, let me back up a little bit
0: well let let me interject real quick because we I had mentioned this to you and you had heard of Paul Stamets and his book mycelium running because Paul Stamets the uh, guru of uh, mushroom or mycology in the uh, in the Northwest our our counterpart out there in Washington State um, talks a lot about how mushrooms can actually save the environment and eat up some of the toxic help at some of these toxic waste sites, which is uh, parallels exactly what you were just talking about. And so he feels that um, that the fungi is very important to our whole uh, in you know our our ecology in our environment. So having said that yes let, let's let's look at um, you know wh- what what role are they, what role do they play in the physical health?
1: In physical health, it's very separate from what they do in our environment, but um, the cell wall material that um, are in most fungi, and particularly the the woody ones, even more strongly so, are composed of really long chain sugars, um, polysaccharides okay. And the cell wall in most mushrooms is a combination of those long-chain sugars and chitin, which is the cell wall material in insects. Um, hmm. But the polysaccharides, some of them um, are classified as glucans or glycans, and many of those stimulate our immune system. So when we eat them or when they're introduced into our body intravenously or uh, intraperineally, um, they stimulate our immune system to function at a higher level. Um, and most of the medicinal mushrooms that we use and have researched well have that in common. They're immune stimulators, um, and as immune stimulators, they are can be fairly effective at helping us to prevent or ward off opportunistic infections. And they also stimulate the immune system to take care of or remove malignant cells, such as cancer cells.
0: And I, I know some of, the, some of the heavy hitters, you've, you've got some of this in your book, but also some like turkey tail. I think isn't turkey tail part of the Essiac um, formula, uh, which is supposed to be a, like a, a herbal um, and uh, mm-hmm. fungi cancer remedy. Mm-hmm. Reishi, shiitake, shiitake. Um, what are some of the others that I you, you've got in your book that you talk about in terms of this, um, like that they're um, they're they are anti-carcinogenic?
1: Well, um, most of them share some of those characteristics. The best one known ones, and and I I focus specifically on those mushrooms that grow in the Northeast, um, which does include some of the best research medicinal mushrooms in in the in the world, mm-hmm. um, and that includes the. Um, turkey tails, right. reishi, which are medicinal mushrooms but are not edible, and also I add in a number of great Im- immune stimulators, medicinal mushrooms that are great food as well, um, including the maitake or hen of the woods, mm-hmm. um, the oyster mushroom, um, Hericium or comb tooth, um, sometimes a related form is known as, uh, or sold as lion's mane or pom-pom. Mm-hmm. Um, And I love those mushrooms because not only can you use them as great food, um, but while you're using this food, they benefit you in other ways. We call them functional food for that reason.
0: So um, let's back up a, a moment. You said reishi is not edible, but yet it's used as it's tinctured. Yes. And it's used as a tincture. Yeah. Now, how can that be? How how can it be that you can't eat it but you can tincture it and it's all right to utilize it to consume it that way?
1: Well, let me clarify. When I say non-edible, I'm not talking about toxic. Okay. Good. Good. I'm talking about if if you know, there are people who eat rishi when it's young, just emerging from the bark or the trunk of a tree, before it's began to assume color, and at that point, it's a nice edible mushroom. But fairly quickly, as it begins to age and, and head toward maturity, it develops a pretty strong mix of terpenes, which is a class of chemicals that Rishi is known for and are quite medicinal, but those are very, very bitter. Ah, okay. You can make a tincture out of it, you can make a tea that is quite a bitter tea, but you wouldn't want to necessarily toss it into your stir-fry. Right. And secondarily, as it matures, it's also quite tough, so it wouldn't be easily digested or cooked and digested in that way.
0: So it, it would work better as, like, um, dehydrated as a powder?
1: Dehydrated as a power powder, um, or made into a tincture, or made into a strong tea. Um, The Chinese these days, uh, the way they actually prefer to use it is to collect the spores of the mushroom. And those that are really skilled, um, they have a process where they actually crack the spore wall, making the the medicinal compounds more easily accessible. And they they use the spores as, as medicine.
0: Interesting. Now, you alluded to the nutritional value. That mm. mushrooms have as food. Can you expand on
1: that? Sure. I mean, th- there are some books, um, particularly the ones that were written in the past, that'll tell you mushrooms have um, negligible nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it used to be common knowledge, the, with the common belief. In reality, mushrooms are an excellent source of a broad range of nutrients. Um, for those people who are um, strict vegetarians, mushrooms can be an excellent source of protein. Um, many of the good edible mushrooms have anywhere from twenty five to more than forty five percent protein by dry weight mm-hmm. so they 're an excellent source of protein with a good amino acid complement um, almost all mushrooms are a great source of vitamin d
0: ah the sun vitamin
1: the sun vitamin whereas we our bodies manufacture cholesterol right um mushrooms um, manufacture ergosterol which is a type of sterol and in the in our bodies and, or in combination with sunlight it's pretty quickly converted into vitamin D
0: Now do you have do you have to eat quite a bit of the of mushrooms to
1: to get to, vitamin D
0: Yeah to get no, that Oh
1: in fact if you if you collect your own wild mushrooms and you sun dry them uh uh-huh. sometimes the the concentrations of vitamin D can be Incredibly high in, in sun dried mushrooms.
0: Ah, interesting. Yeah. So, better to sun dry them than put them in a dehydrator.
1: Yep, if you have that choice, absolutely. Um, here, you have to make sure that the air is uh, dry enough or the, the sun is strong enough to where they well dry without uh, molding. Um, mm-hmm. So, it's just something to be aware of in our northeastern climate. Um, but in addition to vitamin D, mm-hmm. some mushrooms are, um, have uh, some vitamin C in it. Most mushrooms have a couple of different vitamin Bs. And um, they're also excellent sources of some minerals, um, potassium, um, some magnesium, actually some uh, selenium uh, and, and other m- minerals. Um, so they, they're great for you.
0: And, of course, we for the most part, we've been told that we have a selenium-deficient soil. So let me ask you this. um, In terms of uh, mushrooms, do they have to be organic? I mean, you hear these, you know, different uh, things, you know, the different, what's the difference in terms of wildcrafted versus someone who cultivates them and and, and can, you know, and, and grows them organically?
1: Well, there's a huge difference between in, we're going to deal with cultivated mushrooms first. Okay. Organic or, or non-organic, um, again, with the purity, purity of the substrate they're grown upon and whether there might be other um, uh, trace, traces of pesticides or contaminants in, in, in the substrate they're grown upon. That's the concern with non-organic mushrooms. Um, some mushrooms are particularly good. At accumulating uh, heavy metals and can take up uh, toxins from pesticides. Mm-hmm. So that's something to be aware of. Um, wild mushrooms, um, most of the time they're, they're, it indicates that they are wild harvested or wild crafted or wild foraged, and that they're not considered organic per se because you can't know what the history of the soil has been that they've come from or the wood. Um so I've been having that conversation recently with the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. Yeah. What what do we call that? Um so it, Wild
0: it, wild foraged, I would imagine. So you'd have to be mindful of where you forage them. I mean if you're uh, if you're near a, a blueberry, you know, a forest next to, you know, blueberry field area or whatever, uh, and there's spraying on those berries, then you have to think about that, right?
1: Absolutely. In fact, there's recently, uh, there was just a a report published in the Fungi Magazine, actually it's not even hit publication, I got an early copy, Mm -hmm. um, that is really looking at the problem occurring with uh, the great edible mushroom morels that are collected off of old apple orchards that had been commercial orchards. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, because from early early 1900s, really up until about 1980, almost, um, there was fairly heavy use of the pesticide lead arsenate, mm-hmm. and it has left um, significant contamination of both lead and arsenic in the soils of old commercial orchards, and they are both accumulated in morels.
0: Yeah, interesting. Something, something to take note of and think about. Um, I would think, though, if you're in the woods, is it fair to assume if it's you know uh, that that it's a little that your foraging there would be a little safer that you
1: certainly a little safer, but but be, try and be aware of what the history of of the ground has been.
0: You mm-hmm. know, what
1: was woods, what is woods now, was not necessarily wood seventy five years ago. Good point particularly in Maine where, you know, used to be vast parts of Maine were either pasturage or used for farming that have now um, reverted back to forest. Um, but I'm less concerned usually in the woods. I'm more concerned around, around farming um, and orchards uh, about where I collect.
0: Right, that makes sense. You know, Dr. Andrew Weil recommends that we should cook our mushrooms before we eat them to receive the benefits and that he says this can reduce toxicity. What's your take on that?
1: It's a complex issue. I would totally agree with him. Almost always, you should cook your your mushrooms, whether you're eating them or using them for medicine. And there's two, several reasons. Um, Let's talk first on the medicinal piece. Okay. I talked about um, the cell wall material made up of chitin Mm -hmm. and those long-chain polysaccharides, the glucans. Yes. Unless you... Cook the mushroom, or decocted, which is you know a hot water extraction. Um, you are unlikely to be able to access m- many of those glucans. So the cooking is needed to break down the cell wall material and free them up, so that we can take them in. So
0: All right. Other,
1: other than that, you know, you, if you eat them raw, they'll pass through your your gut, um, a hole. Um, so even you know with something like reishi, if you dry it and powder it, it's always good um, to to then put it into a hot water decoction before you you actually use it. Um,
0: and and a decoction is a little different from a, a tea or an infusion, right? Because it means that you cook it a lot longer.
1: Exactly, tea or infusion means you kind of dunk it in hot water, or boiling water, and, and let it steep. Whereas a decoction is actually a simmering and. and um, Really, you want to decoct something? You want to bring it just up to about a boil and let it simmer, um, ideally.
0: Okay. So um, let's, let's talk about the history of mushrooms. Well, no, not
1: yet. We haven't done the second part of that one.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sc- I'm
1: sc- well, we're talking about edible mushrooms. Um, Andrew Wheel says you should cook them, and there's two reasons there. One is to free up the nutrients in them. Right. Because, again, it breaks down the cell wall. The second thing is for some edible mushrooms, um, if they're raw, they can be toxic because they have heat labile um, toxins in them. In other words, they're broken down by the cooking process. And some really wonderful, widely used mushrooms fall into that category, morels being one of them, honey mushrooms being another, the sulfur shelf, or chicken mushroom, chicken of the woods, mm-hmm. being a third. You have to cook those or you're going to get sick. Not nastily sick, but, you know, I don't like to throw up myself.
0: Yeah, so you're saying not necessarily that you're going to get poisoned, but you could have a digestive.
1: Well, it is a toxin. It is a compound that, that triggers it. Um, okay. So it's not just I can't tolerate this, so therefore I throw it up, which does happen if people eat raw mushrooms, mm-hmm. but it, it is a toxin. But not, nothing severe. I mean, there's a range of mushroom toxins, you know, anything from something that will give you a mild gastrointestinal upset to some toxins that certainly can and have killed a number of people.
0: Now, do we have, um, well, I'm, I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but is, um, do we have uh, mushrooms that are high, that are highly toxic, that are poisonous in the Northeast? Absolutely. And so one really has to be mindful about identifying the mushrooms before they choose to eat them.
1: You never, ever, ever eat a mushroom that you don't know the identity of and don't know that if it's edible.
0: So this brings us. I'm kind of jumping ahead to um, identification. Mm-hmm. So is it difficult for uh, a neophyte or someone who's interested in um, you know foraging? And, you know, getting their own mushrooms to add to, you know, a breakfast omelet or to make their own tea. Is this something that a, um, a, a newbie to this, a neophyte, can learn?
1: It's, there, there are a range of mushrooms and in terms of their challenge with identification. There are a number of mushrooms that are easy to identify, that don't have any or many toxic lookalikes, that are pretty common. Back in 1943, um, this fellow, University of Minnesota, mycologist named Clyde Christensen, wrote a book, uh, it's called Common Edible Mushrooms, and he coined the term, the foolproof four. You know, he wanted to pick out some mushrooms that are common, easily identified, long history of use as edibles, um, again, to, to encourage people to start collecting and eating mushrooms. And Maine has actually all those mushrooms, but they have some others which could be the foolproof four of Maine. Um, But, so yeah, it's easy to start out with a few mushrooms, and then some people, you know, they they learn two or three mushrooms, and that's all the wild mushrooms they ever collect for their entire life, and they have all the mushrooms they want, and they're happy. And then you can go beyond that if you want to. I mean, in a given year, I probably eat 20 or 25 different species, easily, um, but you don't have to get that far.
0: Well, in, in the Northeast, how many species of edible mushrooms are available to us?
1: Uh, it's always a moving target because edibility um, and the I mean, what someone considers edible uh, varies depending on how, how far you're willing to go. But easily, we have probably 200, 250 edible species. Wow. Um, and about half that number of known toxic species. And probably of those toxic species, there's about six or seven that are relatively common that have the potential to have toxins in them that could kill somebody. Mm. And to put that in perspective, on average over the past 35 years, there's about two people, one to two people who die per year in the United States from mushrooms. That is increasing because we have more people eating wild mushrooms, but it's not a, it's not a major killer. Certainly far more people get sick.
0: Right. And, um, and in terms of, yeah, and I would think it's, it would depend on someone's constitution, right? I mean, if a mushroom is uh, toxic or poisonous, it would depend on someone's physical health as to also how their body may be able to handle it?
1: Absolutely. It's a really good point. Um, for some people something uh, a toxin that is is severe gastrointestinal irritant um if you're really vulnerable if you're old if your health is compromised it can cause major problems there was a, a 93 93 or 4 year old man who died um a year ago in new hampshire um eating a mushroom that caused severe gastrointestinal distress did the mushroom kill him or was it his compromised health that got triggered um, it's not a mushroom that is typically ever considered deadly.
0: So that's the unknowable, then? Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about the history, then. Let's, let's back up to that. Um, what does history have to say about mushrooms?
1: History says a lot. Um, and again, it, it's, it's culturally driven. Mm-hmm. Um, there are cultures in the world that, we, that I call mycophilic, that love mushrooms, embrace mushrooms. China is probably, you know, one of the, the epitome of a mycophilic culture. They've been using mushrooms medicinally for at least 5,000 years. Mm. And we know that because China has a very long history of written language and fairly stable government and religious institutions that have preserved those writings. And so Rishi, that paragon of... Um, medicinal mushroom called Ling in China has been used there for at least 5,000 years, some people say 7,000 years. And at this point, the Chinese probably integrate several hundred species of mushrooms into their their medicine um, as medicinal mushrooms and easily twice that as edibles and medicinals.
0: And we have reishi available to us in the Northeast.
1: We have, it's a slightly different species. We do have the traditional Rishi as well, but it's much less common. Um, but we have, um, sometimes it's called Rishi or red reishi, um, Ganoderma um, tsuge, which grows on hemlock. And it's, in some areas it's very common, in others yeah, you need to know the habitat to look for it. But it has the same combination of medicinal qualities um, that the eastern Rishi has.
0: And of course, I think Rishi is very popular as a uh, a component of powders or whatnot in Chinese medicine and their uh, pharmacopoeia.
1: It's just about the closest thing that we have to what's considered a mushroom panacea. Mm. It is wildly popular as a medicinal wherever it occurs or wherever it's imported. Um, it has a lot of research uh, touting multiple, multiple properties. It's a great mushroom to learn and to use. Um,
0: and um, in terms of the history of, uh, what about this country, Greg? What about historically in the United States and so mushrooming?
1: For, for us, I, I probably have to go to Europe first because most of our roots are in Europe. Are European, okay. Yeah. And in, for Europe, the history goes back, you know, written, written, record, written records, it leads back to the um, Greeks and Romans. Um, And much of what we know from them is somewhat assumed because we couldn't always tell what species of mushroom they were referring to. They had one that they called the agaricon or agaricum um, that is probably, uh, we call it quinine conch, it's a phomatopsis, that was used for hundreds of years and considered a a panacea used in many ways. and in Eastern Europe, the Russians, uh, the Slavs, uh, and, and the Eurasians used mushrooms like the chaga as well as, as others medicinally. Mm-hmm. Um, country, Native Americans, some of the tribes used, used um, different species of mushrooms medicinally. A lot of that knowledge we have lost through the um, incredible destruction of the culture for the, from the Native Americans... Mm -hmm. Um, So we are in a process today Of embracing medicinal mushrooms um, Much less from our own history And more adopting it from Some of the European history And more strongly From the Chinese, Japanese, Korean um, learnings So America has been behind In terms of our embracing And adoption of medicinal mushrooms We have no mushrooms that are approved through the FDA as medicine, though there are now some mushroom products that are in phase two clinical trials um, for FDA approval. But many people are using them um, as dietary supplements. They're integrating them into their diet. So it's really, it's growing rapidly and has been for the past, um, oh, 20 years anyway, uh, much more in the last 10.
0: Greg, I'm gonna interrupt you so we can take a short break And then we'll resume our conversation about Mushrooms for Health and we'll uh, continue with uh, this conversation and then we'll even open up the line to those who want to call for questions.
2: Excellent. So
0: we're going to take a brief break, Mushrooms for Health, with my guest and author, Greg A. Marley, author of Mushrooms for Health, Medicinal Secrets of Northeastern Fungi. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Healthy Options. My name is Cynthia Swan. We're talking about Mushrooms for Health with my guest, Greg Marley, author of Mushrooms for Health, Medicinal Secrets of Northeastern Fungi. And while I'm thinking about it, let me give you um, uh, a a website here, mushroom at midcoast.com. Or is that your email? That's email. Sorry. Um, so if if folks want to get a hold of you, Greg, that's the best way, mushroom at com.
1: Yes, and that's a way also, um, if you send me an email, I'll add you to a, an email distribution I use for a, a periodic newsletter um, that's both on uh, wild edible mushrooms as well as medicinal mushrooms um, and gives a, a listing of where I'll be teaching and talking around the state.
0: Yeah, great. Incidentally, while we're on that topic, what do you have coming up within this, maybe this month, next month, on talks and... Uh, educational series for mushrooms in the area. Got anything coming up
1: shortly? I have some things coming up. It's this is a, still a bit of a slow time of year. The real, most of the education really gets going as the summer continues. So I don't have anything specific. Um, in April, in May I'll be doing a medicinal mushroom class at the Fields Pond Audubon Center which is just outside of Bangor. And that's on May 22nd. Great. Um, and I'll also be talking in June at the Coastal Maine Botanic Garden um, on June 19th uh, on medicinal mushrooms. And um, I think that's really it until I start uh, you know, classes in July, um, where I'll have a bunch of, of classes going July and August
0: Okay, great. So they can get a hold of you at mushroom at midcoast.com. That's correct. Terrific. Let's uh, continue our discussion here, and I do want to open the line now to callers. If you're interested in asking Greg a question or um, sharing a tidbit of information on today's topic about mushrooms, uh, feel free to give us a call at 1-866-625-9378, and we'll be happy to hear what you have to say. Greg, have we? Um, let's let's talk a little bit more about um, mushroom. We have a caller. Okay, great. Yeah, we have a caller. Let's go ahead and bring the caller on. Hello and welcome. Hi, good morning. I'm
3: sorry, and um, we use a. Uh, stock-
0: I'm sorry. I can't. Um, I can't hear you. I can't understand what you're saying here. Okay. <laughs> ah, there. Now I can hear better. Right. Hi, my name's Diana,
3: um, and my family uh, has integrated shiitake um, mushrooms into our everyday um, cuisine. <laughs> I should say. Um, we just put it in anything, any water that we're gonna cook with. Um, And generally, we buy it in bulk from uh, local Mm co-ops. But I have had opportunities to buy it as well in Asian food markets down in the southern part of the state. Um, And in these markets, um, generally, the prices are much better. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But there is no information on these packages that I could read. And I'm wondering if you had any more information about the practices for um, uh, how they might be grown from China um, and if that's, um, if there's toxins in that process. As well, um, I have a question that you mentioned about using um, the um, mushrooms that are being used medicinally through injections, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about um, how that's being used.
1: Okay, we're good. Two topics there. Thank one, you. one, in terms of the sources for the mushrooms, I'm assuming you're talking about dried shiitake, which is really a common way of preserving shiitake. They do well dried um, and are used commonly in Oriental cooking that way. Um, like many products coming out of giant China. We're learning that um, you really need to know the source, and and there has been some concern expressed about quality and uh, and care. Um, I would feel much more comfortable and confident about shiitake mushrooms coming out of Japan, where I think they have much more careful control. Um, and Japan was is really the, the place where Shiitake uh, growth and cultivation um, got its start about three 400 years ago. Um, so they know what they're doing well. I, I worry about material coming out of China right now because of lack of control of quality. Good, um, the good, second, point. I,
0: good point. And then um, in terms of injection, you want to address that, Greg?
1: Yeah, um, I, I bring that up because... Um, uh, we haven't even begun to touch on some of the real clinical trials that have been done with some of the medicinal mushroom products, which include, you know, turkey tails, mayatake, some of the shiitake products, lentinin. And where they've done clinical trials with people with cancers, particularly earlier on, and but c- continuing now, they sometimes will inject the, the mushroom compounds, the purified glucans into the peritoneal cavity because there are more um, uh, immune receptor sites that pick them up. It's something that you'd absolutely want to do clinically, and yet it's also been shown that when we eat the mushroom compounds, whether it be the, the powdered um, glucans or the, the mushrooms as food, they trigger our gut mucosal lining, the, the immune uh, sensors in there, so it'll also stimulate immune response. It is not as <coughs> potent an immune response as with the injectable, but it's something we can do at home in our kitchen. So that's the strength of it.
0: Great. Uh, Greg, I have a question. So if we can get locally grown shiitake yep. uh, in the state of Maine, because we have some, you know, mushroom growers here that are selling these products at uh, co-ops and at uh, farmer's markets and whatnot, uh, what's your take on that? That's the better choice than getting something, even a shiitake, from overseas out of Japan?
1: Well, um, what you would be getting here, um, for the most part, would be mushrooms that are grown on logs. Right, And um, they may or, may or may not be fruited outdoors. Some people are fruiting them in greenhouses or in control rooms so they can extend their fruiting season. Um, but there would be a season, seasonal nature to it, and you'd be getting it fresh. And those are wonderful. Plus, it also supports the idea of buying and um, keeping uh, cultivation and use local. Is so important so
0: in, the, in the realm, in the world of mushrooms, is it like many other um, food products that fresh is best? Dried is a secondary choice, or does it really depend more on what you're going to utilize the mushroom for as, you know, food or better as a tincture, that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, for mushrooms, fresh is not always best, either as taste for some mushrooms, and, and in terms of use. For shiitakes, again, they have a long history of being used dried. Their flavor is excellent dried, um, it, particularly if you know how to treat them in terms of texture. Um, fresh is wonderful. It's a whole different beast in terms of their, their, um, their texture and, and the way you use them. But there's nothing wrong with dried shiitakes as well. You'd be unlikely to find a commercial source for main shiitake dried because I think most of that is sold fresh, if possible.
0: Great. Thank you. Um, and thank you to our caller.
1: Yes, very much.
0: Um, is it so in mushrooms in general, Greg? Is it difficult to preserve them? Let Let's say you you, you know you harvest uh, the mushrooms, and uh, and it sounds like the best time. Is there a best time to harvest mushrooms for one? Thing?
1: Oh, that's an excellent question. In terms of medicinal mushrooms, particularly the the woody. Um, or leathery ones, you know, sometimes people make the mistake of saying, well, since the mushroom's on the tree year-round, I should use it or collect it and use it year-round medicinally. Mm-hmm. And in reality, you want to only collect the mushroom when it's actively growing, potentially as it begins to, as it's dropping spores or in the process of dropping spores or about to, where it's filled with vitality and health and, and, and it's strong. Um, and that's going to vary depending on the species of mushroom when, when that time will be in, in the season. The one mushroom that is traditionally collected in the winter and can be collected and used um, that way is the chaga, which is not exactly a mushroom fruiting body. It, it's more a, a sclerotium. And chaga, which is, is used medicinally in, in one of my favorite um, mushrooms for teas or tinctures, um, I collect uh, through the winter.
0: So let's, as long as you brought, first of all, I want to give that number again. If anyone wants to call in with a comment or question for Greg, one That's eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. 9378 That's let 625 9378 uh, Greg, let's talk about chaga. Mm. Um, this is a, a cold-loving fungus, right?
1: It's, it's a cold-loving fungus. It, it likes cold northern forests. Um, so it's not actively growing in the winter. So you know, that cold is not—it's not a, it's not, it's not a winter-growing mushroom.
0: But winter is the best time to consume it. Well, winter, is, winter is,
1: has been the traditional time that has been collected. Chaga is probably one of the least known of the medicinal mushrooms in in the state. Um, its history, what medicinal use is really from Siberia, parts of Russia. Um, parts of northern Korea, northern Japan, um, Finland. It grows on birch trees predominantly um, in northern climates, and it's not well known in this country. And where it has been used traditionally, it, the traditional the tradition is to collect it in the winter.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and chaga is that black stuff. You know, it's like if, if you don't know what your look, right? I mean, it's, the, it, it's black on the birch.
1: Yeah, it looks, you know, its common English name is the birch clinker because it looks like something that's been charred and left on the bark after you hit it with a blowtorch or something. Yeah, It's very very black and very crinkly.
0: And so how do you harvest it?
1: Well, it's, it's a parasite on birch trees, mm-hmm. so it grows as kind of an extruded mass on the side of the, the trunk of a tree, and I typically use a hatchet, and if you strike just where the, the chaga growth meets the trunk, it'll usually pop right off because it's not fibrous. It's quite friable, so it'll break right off without doing any damage to the tree more than the chaga has already done. Um, so it's quite easy to collect um, if you bring a simple tool. Sometimes if one is sticking out from the tree, just striking the side of it with the palm of your hand will, will break it cleanly off.
0: And medicinally, chaga is um, it, you you use it as a tea. What for for medicine for taste?
1: Um, I for both actually, but I mean my primary use for making the tea. Um, I, I make a tea out of it just the ground chaga, chaga. I also make a chai, which is ground chaga to which I add a number of organic chai spices.
0: So it's a it's a it's a. Chaga chai
1: tea. Chai, absolutely. That's what I call it and sell it as that. Um, And chaga has the immune-stimulating polysaccharides, so it's it's an immune tonic. Um, and has been used traditionally in Siberia to treat some types of gastrointestinal cancers, um, especially gastrointestinal. Mm -hmm. But it also has a broad range of triterpenes, which are anti-inflammatory and antimicrobial, Um, And I use it in my health and the health of my family, particularly my son, um, as a way through the colder months to prevent um, things like uh, sinus infections and respiratory tract infections, which both my son and I are prone to. Um, I used to get bronchitis once or twice a winter for the first um, 25 years I lived here. I have not had bronchitis in almost six years,
0: and and you attribute that to the use of the mushroom, mushroom, medicinal mushrooms.
1: I do. I use and predominantly I use. I attribute that to chaga.
0: To chaga. So oh. how much? How much do you have to take of it? Do I, I do.
1: I, I tincture it. It makes a wonderful tincture. So I do one of two things. If I'm really stressed, if I'm under a lot of pressure, I'm not sleeping well. I'll take it as a tincture in the morning in hot water when I first get up. But then I also have, uh, often have a cup of chai, um, either tea or chaga, or uh, either have chaga tea or chaga chai at some point during the day. Great. Um, and I make it up, I, I make up the, the chai by a half gallon without any milk product in it, and I keep it in the refrigerator and heat it up as I need it.
0: So it lasts how long in the fridge?
1: In the refrigerator, it'll last easily a week. Um, usually it's gone before then, but it probably would last 10 days, you know, cold in the refrigerator.
0: That's Chaga chai, um, Greg. We have another caller here, so uh, welcome, caller. If you'd like to give us your name and the town you're from, and the question or comment,
2: <clears throat> this is Margaret, and I'm from Orland. Welcome. Hi, Margaret. Hi. Um, we uh, inoculated some logs with shiitake. Mm-hmm. I think it was uh, last spring, mm-hmm. and um, uh, we've you know we've kept them damp down by the river. Um, put a, a cloth over them and soak the cloth and um, kept them damp. Um, but we haven't seen a whole lot of activity. We see uh, some little li- lines of little tiny uh, dots along the sides. Mm-hmm. Would that be shiitake? And then the other thing is where we actually inoculated it, um, it's still flat. <laughs> And uh, But you can see that it's kind of gro- grown out a little bit, but flat. And, and there's, you know, I don't know what, what to, how to evaluate
1: this. Okay, well, the first year after you inoculate logs, it's kind of like watching submarine races. Okay. You don't see uh, anything happening, but there's a lot of activity happening in the log because that's the time when the vegetative part of the shiitake fungus is colonizing that log
2: mm-hmm.
1: growing through the wood but it's not going to show up on the surface. Okay, so it takes and quite a while then. Yeah, it absolutely. Occasionally, for those people who are lucky and have a really active strain and usually don't use, you know, use a wood that's um, different than oak. If you use alder or some softer woods, sometimes you might have fruiting in September from logs that you planted in the spring. I usually it's been my experience that it takes a year. Okay. Now what you need to do is I would wait a little while. I would wait until about first or second week of May. Yeah. And if you have the ability to soak the logs, I mean immerse them.
2: Yes, I can. I just roll them into the river.
1: Okay, you do that or yeah, I, I use a 35-gallon garbage and hmm. or bucket in my in my yard as well and soak them for 24 hours. Okay. And then pull them out and, and put them in a place where it's going to, you know, and t- tip them up so they can fruit and the fruit will come out of the log and not run into something else. So then and that, after, that's a way so of stimulating see, the logs to fruit. Pardon? That's a way of stimulating the logs to fruit. I
2: see. So now I've had them lying uh, flat. On the ground? Well, I decided that maybe that wasn't good, so I had a piece of heavy metal mesh that I put underneath them that just lifted them slightly. Perfect off the ground.
1: Yeah, and and that's the, the exact thing you want to do to let them, you, you lay them down to let them colonize, but yeah, then you tip them up to fruit. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so you let them fruit, they'll fruit through, you know, the warmer parts of May and maybe into June, and when they stop fruiting, then lay them back down again until September and do the same again. Oh, soak and then again. in
2: September, throw them in the water
1: and yep. soak? Yep, stimulate another flush of fruiting.
2: okay. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, the other question I wanted to ask was about the shiitakes that we get from Asia. I just, you know, I've been so um, uh, turned off by uh, Chinese imports, food imports, because of, the talk, you know, the way they've mishandled things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just wondered whether any of these uh, shiitakes we get might be treated with something to, you know, prevent any secondary um uh, activity going on there or whatever and whether we need to be concerned about using them for that reason. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Oops, hold on. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear the end of what you just said.
2: Um, You know, I'm concerned that maybe in China they may, may spray them with some kind of preservative or something just to keep any secondary growth of um, mold or anything off of the dried mushrooms because they're... You know, increase their shelf life or whatever. I just felt, you know, unhappy un- about using them.
1: Yeah, and and I don't know whether they do that that in in China. I, I worry about China given given the recent history. Um, tip: You don't have to spray them with anything if you have them dried and and um, in an enclosed container of some form. They, they'll dried mushrooms will last a very long time. Uh uh-huh. But but I share your your concern. Um,
2: well, anyway, I, did, I just w- th- 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 thought you might have heard something on <laughs> on the back uh, sources. But, um, yeah, I, I think I'll stick with the local. And uh, thank you so very much.
1: You're sure welcome, Margaret. Good luck with your shiitakes.
2: Thank you. Bye. Thank
0: you. Um, Greg, let me ask you this. In terms of uh, cleaning mushrooms, so let's say someone, you know, harvests some mushrooms, wants to, uh, knows what they're doing, uh, knows it's safe to eat it, wants to put it in a food or a stir-fry or whatever, how do you clean them?
1: Boy, that, that's a loaded question because it, part of it depends on just how picky you are. What I do to clean mushrooms is I usually will take a brush, and brush off any loose dirt, um, cut off any parts that uh, where the dirt is really clinging or, or um, parts of the wood are still clinging, um, and use them that way. Some people only feel safe if they've washed their mushrooms <laughs> to, to get off anything.
0: Now, a mushroom's pretty <laughs> delicate.
1: So, well, yeah, so, well, some of them are delicate, some of them are incredibly tough. Okay. So, you know, it, uh, the mayatake or hen of the woods, a great edible, great medicinal mushroom, mm-hmm. um, is a great example. It grows in big clusters on the ground, you know, average clusters about 10 inches across. Um, and within that cluster of overlapping caps, um, things like sal bugs and millipedes um, oftentimes wander through. And so you have to break it apart, um, and some people really need to wash it, and that's a mushroom that's easily washed. Again, I just brush off um, anything and, and make sure I, I break it up into small pieces so I um, evict any um, hangers-on, mm-hmm. use it that way. But you know, part of that is personal taste. If you're going to wash it, if you're going to put it under running water, make sure you do that just before you cook it because the problem with mushrooms is... There are they're already eighty five to ninety plus percent water. They've got that good protein content. They're easily they easily will begin to spoil with either bacteria or mold, and particularly if you wash them first. Okay. Um, so, a if you're if you're collecting mushrooms to, for for eating, use them when they're fresh and firm and prime. If they look like they're starting to to uh, to break down or or get uh, moldy or uh, at all rotted, uh, don't use them because some people who get sick from mushrooms get sick from the bacteria that are growing on old mushrooms rather than anything that's in the mushrooms.
0: Okay. So, and how if you just let's say you go out and you forage for mushrooms, you pick some, you've got them in your basket. Um, but you not. You want to cook them later on in the same day. I, I'm, I'm imagining it's probably best to, to do whatever you're going to do with them within like 24 hours.
1: Again, it varies on the species of mushroom. Okay. Some edible mushrooms you know, will start breaking down very rapidly, uh, like the shaggy mane, mm-hmm. called an inky cap. Other mushrooms, like the hen of the woods, if it's a, a young, prime hen of the woods, um, I, it's not unusual for me to have those in my refrigerator for a week before I finish them.
0: Okay. Because um, so they're
1: quite firm.
0: You can store them in the refrigerator then? Is that the best place to store them?
1: Um, you want them cool. Uh, okay. Again, cool, you know, a cool temperature will help to prevent breakdown. With fleshy mushrooms, I avoid keeping them in a plastic bag because mm. that holds in the moisture and, again, will promote mold or bacteria growth. Um, if you have them in a bowl covered over with a moist towel, um, that's ideal or something like that.
0: Okay, and store them in the fridge. I want to back up uh, to the chaga tea. You were talking about its anti-inflammatory properties. And so what about for arthritis? What about people who have, like, you know, these various types of arthritis, fibromyalgia, these anti-inflammatory disease states? You know, um,
1: that's a great question. And I I, I have always hesitated to recommend them because I haven't seen the, the clinical research that's really supported it. Okay. And, and... I've had a couple of stories from people over the past year, two women who heard a talk I gave two and a half years ago on medicinal mushrooms, Mm -hmm. started collecting and using chaga. One of them had rheumatoid arthritis in a couple of her joints. Another one had, again, joint problems. Um, And both of them report remarkable reduction in in stiffness and symptoms um, using the chaga. Um, again, it's not clinical, but it's certainly strong anecdotal.
0: Right, and anecdotal, I, I, my feeling always is if it's your story and it's true for you, that really, that matters, mm-hmm. <laughs> if it, if it's helpful. Um, let's talk about when is it beneficial to actually tincture the mus, mush, uh, mushrooms and how do you go about tincturing them if you want to do that?
1: That's a really good question. Um, a tincture is a delivery system. Tincturing is an excellent way of extracting the medicinal compounds from a mushroom and preserving them. So when you, know, you want to you use mushrooms, again, that are fresh, ones that you would use for, for other reasons you would use for tincturing. Don't use them because they're old or anything. Mm-hmm. Use good mushrooms um, and use it as a way of preserving what's there to carry on through, through the winter or, or, or whatever. Um, the process of tincturing is complex with mushrooms. Unlike herbal tincturing, where you you macerate it and and you let it um, tincture in an alcohol solution for a given amount of time, with mushrooms, you still need to add that hot water decoction because some of the compounds are soluble in the alcohol, and some need to be freed by the hot water decoction. So you do a double extraction tincture.
0: Mm.
1: And the directions for doing that are a bit more complex than what I would ever do over the phone in, into a radio show. Right. Um, there are great and detailed directions on a double extraction tincture in my book.
0: Okay. So the idea of uh, when one would tincture is if uh, you want to use it mostly for medicinal purposes. Absolutely.
1: Only for medicinal, yeah.
0: Okay. And we in our closing moments I just want to say thanks again, Greg, for being on Healthy Options and sure. having this conversation about mushrooms. And Greg can be reached at mushroom at midcoast dot com. And again, the name of his book is Mushrooms for Health Medicinal Secrets of Northeastern fungi. I'm Cynthia Swan. Thanks for tuning in to Healthy Options, which airs the first Wednesday of each month at 10 a.m. and other hosts of Healthy Options include Andre Bella and Rhonda Feynman. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Cynthia.
2: Support for WERU comes from Inner Tapestry, a holistic journal celebrating and supporting life featuring alternative health and natural living articles, calendar listings, and a directory of resources. Available at health food stores and alternative health centers, 799-7995 or innertapestry.org.